Hello, I'm Kevin Richard. Well, it's debate season here in Idaho, except when it's not. We've had several high-profile debates canceled just within the past few days, debates involving candidates for governor, lieutenant governor, and Congress. So what is the state of political debate right now, nationally and at the state level? And when a political debate actually does take place, what should voters listen for? To talk about that and to talk about Boise State University's decorated Talking Broncos debate program, I'm joined this week on the podcast by Dr. Amanda Hicks. She is the chair of Boise State's Department of Communication, and she is director of forensics for the Talking Broncos. Here's our conversation. Well, Dr. Hicks, thank you for taking time to be on the podcast this week. You're right in the middle of debate season, so talk to us a little bit about the season right now. I know you had a a competition in Orlando last month and one earlier this month in Texas. How is the season going? I mean, I... I... Well, this is actually, we're at the end of the season, thankfully, because it starts in in September. So it's a long season for uh, a competitive university program. Um, so yes, we just were we've done in Texas at a national tournament and uh, international public debate, and before that we were in Orlando at a comprehensive tournament, mm-hmm. so that's both speech and debate. And there, the students competed in three different formats of debate. So we definitely uh, had a lot of different debates swirling around us in the last six weeks. Uh, but thankfully, we are we are home and done for the season. And it was another successful season. I saw how uh, you guys took second place overall in Orlando last month. Oh, yes. They, well, they took first place overall in, in public speaking in, in the speech championship. And they took second place in debate and second place overall. Um, this is the, the sixth year that they've had the top finish in public speaking. And it's a biennial tournament. So that's 12 years. And uh, before that, it was uh, five consecutive tournaments of uh, the overall uh, winner, the overall champion in the comprehensive tournament. So this is a, this is a program at Boise State that is consistently a top three finisher in multiple uh, national organizations in speech and debate. So it's it's something for the the, the campus community and and beyond to be very very proud of. We have an amazing tradition of debate at Boise State. It's one of the oldest programs on campus. It was actually started by the first president of of Boise College. Uh, And we're only two years younger than the the actual educational institution. So it's it's a big deal, yeah. So this, you've been a perennial success here. So without giving away too much of your secrets, what's the formula or what's, how does it happen? Oh, the formula is preparation and values and uh, a good culture. Um, and also, here's a, here's a fun word, uh, an avoidance of indoctrination. I, I really believe that um, you don't over-instruct bright people. And so you, you, you don't need to, to teach students that there's only one way to do something well. Uh, and I think that that's really the strength of Boise State Forensics. Forensics being a speech and debate program is this that as much of the value is, as excellence is and professionalism is, uh, so is creative expression. And, mm-hmm. and that really allows students to kind of transcend the best of what most other people can do. So you kind of you take sharp thinkers and you, you set them free. You let them do their thing. 
Uh, yeah, you want to be so prepared that you are confident and free. That's where you will get to highest craft. It's through that preparation so that you get to a space where you're absolutely confident and absolutely free. What are you looking for in a student for this program? I mean, what are the traits that make make for a successful debater? Obedience. <laughs> uh, that's a great question because it's it's really not about their past experience. I like to have novice competitors, so students don't need to have uh, high school speech and debate experience, even though Idaho has an amazing high school speech and debate community. I look for people who understand what it means to be part of a team mm-hmm. and who understand the commitment and who have authentic aspirations for greatness. Um, I know that's a, an easy list, but that's what I look for. And it kind of gets at the flip side. I mean, what are the students looking for in this program? I mean, what are they hoping to get out of it that they take through the rest of their lives? Well, I think that it might start out a little more mercenary than it eventually becomes. Uh, This is a great gateway to law school. Mm -hmm. Uh, We send a lot of students to the top law schools in the country. We send a lot of students to top graduate programs and uh, international programs. So there's definitely the opportunities that come along with with this program. But um, I think that eventually the sort of shift to an appreciation to have a campus organization, a college experience where they are part of a fairly elite program that is not necessarily a small group, but smallish. And they get to build things with their faculty members. And, and so the best parts of the educational experience that one can have at Boise State um, is available through this program. And I think that's what students really start to appreciate is this sort of limitless opportunity, again, to, to get to a place of highest craft. So when they graduate, they really are ready to, to do anything. They're not entitled to do anything, they're ready to do Has it changed any with social media? I mean, anybody can get into an argument on social media, and I, I, I know I've, I do it pretty much on a daily basis, but there's a difference between getting into an argument and debating successfully and persuasively. Has that changed the way students come at this? I don't think it has. Um, I haven't observed uh, any kind of radical shifts with with social media. Um, but I mean, most of the places where the the media platform actually encourages back and forth argument. Is, is limited to something like Facebook, which isn't terribly popular with the, right. uh, the kids these days. So, you know, that's an interesting question, too, to look at the different um, parameters of social media in terms of engagement. You know, Twitter is, is allegedly this way to engage with people that you, you otherwise would not, but it's also you know, the, the sort of one-sidedness in the way that engagement and interaction is supported. Uh, is a little misleading in mm-hmm. terms of back and forth. And so back and forth is an important part of debate. So I think that the most, uh, the realest scraps that you're gonna see is on something like Facebook, but then the social media that students, college students prefer uh, is in something like Instagram, where 
you're not on there arguing, you're on there um, affirming each other. Right, it's more of a sharing, more of a positive oh. place, <laughs> certainly than Twitter can be on some days. Yeah, yeah. Now, I, I did want to talk about the state of debate you know, in the, the political realm. And, and first of all, I know we're talking about apples and oranges. There's a big difference between you know, competitive debate and political debate. I mean, just give sure us the 30,000-foot the level of how they differ. Well, uh, yes. I'm glad, he, I'm, I'm glad they brought that up because it's, it's, a, it's a vital first point. Uh, the difference between political debate and you know, the conventions of competitive debate uh, are, are vast, but I think that the, the big view is that political debate isn't uh, debate by definition. It's probably, rather than calling it debating, we would call it answering. Mm-hmm. And that is primarily used to generate sound bites to satisfy, satisfy one's base. Mm-hmm. That's what political debate is. Uh, there's a lot of technicalities of competitive debate, but I'll, I'll go to more of a philosophical place. Competitive debate at its best interrogates assumptions and creates new meaning. So you're actually, you have a burden of solvency. You have a burden, not of being right, but of identifying the solutions that solve the problem. Yeah, a burden of proof of evidence and solutions. Oh, sure, use of evidence, but really, you know, uh, the. The transformative experience of debate is to create a new possibility, right? To use all of this clash and all this disagreement and, you know, using different weighing mechanisms and criteria and evidence to come up with the best possible perspective or solvency. And I do not believe that that occurs in political debate. <laughs> I'm inclined to agree. but. <laughs> We may not be seeing as many political debates right now. I mean, you've got the RNC coming out last week about national debates on the presidential plane in 2024 and what we've just seen in Idaho the past few days with debates. Yeah. What's your baseline reaction to that? I, I'm torn uh, because there's, a, there's part of me that is perhaps more idealistic and more, you know, uh, someone who someone who loves the state and very much loves being a, an Idaho kid, uh, is I, my reaction is why are these politicians, why are these people uh, above, uh, not reproach, but why are they above this? Mm-hmm. At what point are, do you give yourself permission to say, I don't need to do that? That's not permission that you give yourself, in, in my opinion, and it, it it's, it's insulting that you're not going to make yourself available to this part of the political process. That's part of the gig. It's part of the job. So the idealistic, uh, you know, bright-eyed Idaho citizen in me says that. And then there's a couple of other perspectives that are much more cynical um, and and relatable. Mm-hmm. Right? Sure. I, the way that public discourse is right now, why on earth would you put yourself through that is one of the thoughts that I have. Uh, the messes that these debates can turn into, the grandstanding, you know, it's just one more opportunity for an embarrassment, right? So I relate. I think about that all the time, like what it means to be a public figure right now or to, you know, to, to be vulnerable the way that a lot of people in politics are. 
regardless of what party that you're affiliated with. So I, I have sort of empathy for why someone might, might want not to participate, but that also takes me around to this question of like, what's the worst possible thing that's going to happen? Uh, you know, because in these particular instances, I think we've, it's the, it's, we've got three candidates who have refused mm-hmm. to debate. Uh, in this particular instance, this is within your own party, right? And mm-hmm. so that, that vulnerability shouldn't be as big of a consideration. So I, I think my larger answer is there's, there's a lot of different facets of this, but probably the two um, most different is that disappointment in, in the political leadership in Idaho. And then, uh, you know, some kind of like empathy with, with what that's like right now to participate in that kind of discourse and, and uh, how disastrous that can be and how easy it might be to say, no, I'm not going to do it. But those aren't the reasons they're offered right. for why they're not going to do it. And I think that that is a, an important thing, too. Whatever your explanation is, whatever your inherency or causes that you're identifying, that has got to be in alignment with, with the values. And so people aren't saying, uh, oh, the, the political discourse and, and the environment of the debate right now would be an, an embarrassing mess because they would have to take responsibility for that. Uh, what they say instead is that, you know, oh, well, my, my, my policy is public record, or you have to do this before I agree to that, or, or creating a, a list of, of conditions. Yeah. 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 So that's my answer. Hey, when these debates do occur, when you do hear a political debate, by and large, how do you think politicians generally perform fair? Equip themselves in, in debate. What do they generally do right? What do they generally? What's a recurring pitfall or two that you see them falling into? Well, a pitfall of efficacy is different than a pitfall of integrity, mm-hmm. and I think that I think that, that a lot of people are inclined to use debate to to be right or to make someone else wrong, uh, which is part of debate, but which seems to be uh, all of debate. When we, when we talk about political debate, which is the, the only point is to you know, catch someone, make them look bad. The gotcha moment. Beat someone, yeah, gotcha. But also, a lot of politicians aren't terribly uh, competent public speakers, mm-hmm. public communicators. Uh, so, I, I, and you, you know, Public debate is difficult. Public debate is vulnerable. Public speaking is is nerve wracking, and so there's some people that you know are more comfortable with it than others. So you've got a lot of uh, public speaking apprehension and anxiety built into this. You have the limitations of the the structure of the debate, debate rebuttal. so going back to your question, you know, what are the pitfalls? I think the big pitfall would be just not being prepared. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think even before that, a pitfall is a local or state politician who does not educate themselves on policy. Uh, and I think that sounds like a real no doubt thing to say, but it's, it's absolutely true that you have a responsibility of a burden of understanding law. Mm-hmm. and of understanding policy if you're going to mess with it. 
And so I think the biggest pitfall is that people don't prepare themselves in the way that they are obligated to do as politicians in the state. And it's interesting that you bring up the fear of public speaking, the apprehension of public speaking, that it can affect even somebody who does it for a living. In that kind of a format, in that kind of a pressure situation, it's different than speaking at a, a town hall or going door to door. Absolutely, yes. And that, that just adds, right, that, that, that it is a, um, not just conflict, conflict can be a positive thing, but it, it's... It's an attack, and so if you're walking into if you're walking into an event, which by definition is an attack on your perspective or an attack on your ideas, then that's probably not going to reduce your apprehension or anxiety. Right. A setting that's adversarial, you know, right. in, in, on a good day, it's make, adversarial. It's probably going to make everyone even more adversarial sure. because you know the, the the tension is so high. And so why not just gravitate towards the gotcha moment if it's just uh, an uh, adversarial, uh, high stress moment in the first place, right? Why not just, mm -hmm. why just not stay at, the, stay at that one point in the top and don't budge? Okay. So journalists, panelists, what do we do right? <laughs> what do we do wrong? I, I, <laughs> I mean, you do a lot right. Uh, just providing that forum uh, and in some cases trying to control the debate uh, and direct it but then again that's one of that's a place where we get those excuses where oh you know there's bias or there, you know people aren't being treated fairly uh, but i think the the best thing that journalists and moderators can do is moderate the debate mm -hmm. and take control of it Again, these aren't debates. These are people answering the question. There's very little opportunity for rebuttal. Uh, and, you know, that's life right now. It has been for a while. There's no room for nuance in public discourse. But there's, you know, there's a really limiting block of time to do something. It would be nice if the, if the debates offered more clash, more policy clash where there was more back and forth because, again, good debate interrogates assumptions. And mm -hmm. so it's that opportunity to interrogate the assumption that's warranting the claim that we want to get to that political debate has no time for, no room for. Mm -hmm. And I think it, it <laughs> sounds like it's getting at one of the big differences between, you know, a competitive debate and a political debate. A political debate you're trying to cover a lot of different topics. We're trying to ask questions about a lot of different topics. So you don't get the chance really to drill into assumptions and solutions in the kind of depth that you're talking about. Certainly. So if you were to fix it, I mean, if you were, you know, had the power to, to fix it and get it back more towards, you know, we may never get back, get back to Lincoln and Douglas, but can you ever get it back to more of a constructive format or formula that the candidates will want to participate in and voters will get something out of? That's, that's a lot to ask. <laughs> yeah. no. A new component. You just introduced a new component, which is the audience. And, right, yeah. And the voters. Uh, because allegedly the purpose of this debate is so that our informed citizens, right, mm -hmm. can 
and weigh different perspectives and make decisions based on on uh, this this phenomenon, this activity of right. debate. Because otherwise, why are any of us doing it? Why are the candidates Ooh, there? Why are we but, covering them as journalists, even? And and here you lead us into a really cynical place, which is who cares? Who on earth is swayed? Yeah. Who on earth? Who's, who's going down to this debate going, well, everything's up in the air right. until I like, what they have to say. Right. Uh, and, then, and then, I mean, goodness help us if that's the case, because nothing gets settled, nothing gets solved in these debates. So if everything's up in the air until it's, you know, settled by the debate, nothing will be settled. settled by the debate, right? Yeah. So going back, you know, how do we, how do we structure it so it's better? I think there's a lot of moving parts. I think there's a lot of moving parts, and it's that's a pretty ambitious, um, ambitious ask. But I'll tell you what, Kevin, I have a good answer right off the bat, which is show up to your debate. Mm-hmm. That's how you get started, because we're not going to move toward a place where they're actually productive and functioning if we're moving away from actually having uh, to to attend them and participate in them. So I do think that there is one very identifiable first step in making things better, and that is for people to feel obligated to do their uh, public duty and participate in events. Within the constraints of the debates we are having with the candidates that are showing up, you as somebody who you know does this for a living, who, who's studied this, what do you listen for and what should people listen for if you're you know, a listener's guide to the political debate? I, I think that is, I think that's a great question. And it, it goes back to something that I already said, someone who understands policy, someone who understands the way things work, someone who understands the law. Uh, that's what I'm listening for. Because again, if one of the most productive parts of debate is interrogating assumptions. How many people are relying on underdeveloped assumptions to forward their claims or you know, their stance? And so the more someone understands how something works, right, the, the more of a positive effect they have on how I, I receive them and their message, even if I don't agree with it. Uh, there's lots of times where I encounter information that is contrary to what I would assume and I love those moments when, because it just it shows you how many how many how many things are possible, how much perspective is available uh, if we engage with each other in this you know kind of clash over the best way to solve a problem or the best way to move forward with something. So valuing that clash and valuing the emergence of new meaning rather than valuing that someone wins or someone loses or someone, you know, is made right and someone is made wrong. Uh, valuing all the new information that comes out mm-hmm. when you interrogate assumptions and clash, that leads you to, to much better places. So uh, I like to listen for information. I like to listen to things that are beyond just sound bites. And uh, I like to I like to be taught new things in debates. That's what I would be listening to. And I think it all kind of comes back to a more critical and patient form of listening than listening for the gotcha moment or listening for the flub. I mean, you're really trying to listen for the, the meat of uh, of the debate, uh, the meat of the evidence, the argument, the assertion. Sure. Yeah. I mean, something like um, school waivers, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. 
I think that there are a set of assumptions around who is served by those and who is not. Right. Uh, where they are successful, where they are not, where they do their job and where they do not. And the more that we learn about that, for instance, in a unit configuration as a rural state, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, the difference between this situation and the more urban area, the situation in more rural areas, the more information that we get out about that particular construct or that particular issue, right? The more in- informed support um, or refutation, we can we can meet uh, recommendations with, mm-hmm. right? That seems to be something very pertinent to the listeners of, of the available debates that are going on right now. Well, I suspect some of our listeners will be listening next week when we have uh, state superintendent candidates uh, on public TV on on Monday of next week. So, Dr. Hicks, it was great to have you here on the podcast to talk about debates and talk about where they stand and how to make the most of them. Yeah, well, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Thanks. Again, that was Dr. Amanda Hicks. She is the chair of the Department of Communication at Boise State University and the director of forensics for the Talkin' Broncos debate team. Now, glass half full, guys. There are some debates going on this primary season, including two involving the three Republican candidates for state superintendent of public instruction, the incumbent, Sherry Ibarra, and challengers, Debbie Critchfield and Brandon Durst. All three candidates will be on the same stage on Monday night on Idaho Public Television, and then they will appear the following night, Tuesday night, on KTVB. Blake Jones has a preview of those debates at idahoednews.org, and of course, we'll have full coverage of the debates next week. Also at idahoednews.org, you can check out what happened at the State Board of Education meeting this week. The State Board did freeze tuition at our four-year schools, but student fees are going up by varying amounts at the four schools. I have a breakdown of that. Devin Bodkin has the latest on the school funding formula issue. The State Board took that up on Thursday. Also, we have the latest on what's happening with all-day kindergarten and half-day kindergarten. One other big school district around the state is going to full-day K. We have that story for you. We also have the story about how the two largest districts in the state, Boise and West Ada, are trying to figure out how to provide half-day kindergarten options to parents who prefer that. And also at idahoidnews.org, I take a look at the Reclaim Idaho initiative. It's not official, but it looks like there's a pretty good chance that the initiative will be on the ballot in November. I take a look at what to expect if that occurs and what kind of election that might look like. As for next week, we will have, like I say, full coverage of the uh, superintendent debates and full coverage of all things education policy and education politics. So check back on the website daily. Follow us on Twitter at Idaho Ed News. We tweet out links to our latest stories and bulletins on breaking items. Follow us on Facebook and comment on our stories there. And check back next Friday for another podcast. I'm Kevin Richard. Have a good week. Mm-hmm.